you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Colonel Thomas Hunton Swope was one of the most prominent citizens of Kansas City, Missouri. Originally from Kentucky, he had been born on October 21, 1827 and attended Yale. When he graduated, he entered the real estate profession, and by 1860, he was one of the largest individual landholders in Kansas City and the environs. He donated to the city the land that would later become Swope Park and also the site of Kansas City General Hospital. Despite the title colonel, he never actually served in the military. One of his brothers, Logan Swope, died in 1900. After Logan's death, Thomas moved into his mansion on Pleasant Street in Independence, Missouri. The house was exceedingly crowded. Living there already were Logan's widow, his seven children, two sons and five daughters, and Swope's cousin, Moss Hunton. Getting on in years, Thomas made out his will. His estate was valued at $3,600,000. The will dictated that six of Logan's children would receive $200,000 each, the seventh, daughter Frances, receiving $135,000. The remainder was going to be donated to various charities. The will was to be administered by Moss Hunton, Swope's nephew, Stuart Fleming, and attorney John Paxton. On September 5, 1909, Thomas Swope fell at the mansion. Although nothing was really wrong with him, he was apparently a bit of a hypochondriac and convinced himself he was of ill health. As a result, he was bedridden. Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, his niece Frances's husband, called for a nurse and was given the number of a Pearl Keller he had Nurse Keller come out to the house to keep an eye on him. Almost a month after Thomas became bedridden, on October 1st, 1909, Moss Hunton was eating supper at about 5.30 p.m. when, as Keller said in her later testimony, he remarked, I feel dizzy, but I guess I'll be alright in a little bit. He had hardly said these words when Mrs. Swope and Margaret Swope entered the room and sat down at the table. Again, he complained of being dizzy. I offered to help him, but he said, no, I'll be all right. As he started to raise a glass of water to his lips, he sank back in his chair. His head dropped back. I tried to raise him to his feet. Then I saw that he had lost control of his right leg, and his right arm was paralyzed. His face was very pale. He had a quick bounding pulse. 
Dr. Twyman and Dr. Hyde had both been called, but before they got there, we carried him into the library and put him on a couch. His face then began to grow red and flushed. Just about this time, Dr. Twyman came in. Mr. Hunton vomited and then gradually lapsed into unconsciousness. The doctor referred to here was the Swope's regular family physician, George T. Twyman. Both he and Dr. Hyde agreed, when the latter arrived, that Moss Hunton had suffered a stroke. Dr. Hyde suggested bloodletting as a treatment, and again Dr. Twyman agreed. Bloodletting as a treatment for post-stroke symptoms is still practiced today, though mainly among Asian cultures. Dr. Twyman said that he thought they had taken enough blood after a pint was removed, but Dr. Hyde seemed to ignore him and continued drawing blood. Several more times he ignored Dr. Twyman's advice to stop, and finally Mrs. Hyde told her husband to stop. He did. By this time, nearly two quarts of blood had been extracted from Moss Hunton, and, unsurprisingly, he promptly died. According to Pearl Cower, almost immediately upon Hunton's death, Dr. Hyde told her that since Moss Hunton had been an executor of Thomas Swope's will, he should be made executor in his stead. Pearl Cower said that she was only a nurse and wouldn't get herself involved with such legal matters. Mrs. Hyde later disputed this, however. Mrs. Hyde was the former Frances Swope, one of the daughters of Logan Swope and thus the niece of Thomas. Bad blood had arisen with the rest of the family upon her marrying Dr. Hyde, with it being stated that the doctor was marrying her for her money. There were rumors he had had affairs in the past in which he basically hooked up with wealthy women, got what money he could out of them, and then moved on to the next. It was thought Frances would find herself just another of these women, but she persisted in marrying the doctor, and she was practically shunned by her family. In more recent years, Thomas at least, if not the entire family, seemed to have at least partially forgiven Francis. He had provided the couple with a house in Kansas City, but this bad blood, I'm sure, accounted for why she was to receive less money than her siblings, according to Thomas's will. Two days later, Colonel Swope was feeling better and got out of bed. He ate breakfast at about 8 a.m., but soon thereafter complained of feeling ill. Dr. Hyde gave Nurse Keller a tablet of a digestive aid and told her to give it to the colonel. She did, but he didn't get any better. He went back to bed and developed difficulty breathing and went into convulsions. Soon, he lost the ability to speak. By 12 noon, he was completely unconscious. Dr. Hyde diagnosed a stroke once more, although this was disputed. Not only would it be a remarkable coincidence since Moss Hunton had just died of a stroke two days before, but several people remarked on how the symptoms were entirely different. By that night, Colonel Swope was dead. It was noted that though he was the usual physician, Dr. Hyde neglected to call for Dr. Twyman on this occasion. In August or September of 1909, Carrie Copridge, the daughter of the Swope's cook Lena, had come down with a case of typhoid fever. She was a resident in the servants' quarters behind the house, rather than in the mansion proper. She survived. However, Dr. Hyde on this occasion advised the family against drinking water from the cistern they usually drew it from, saying that this water was doubtless infested with typhus, and that if the Swopes drank it, they would surely fall ill. Dr. and Mrs. Hyde ate Thanksgiving dinner at the Swope mansion. 
They brought their own water to dinner, however, while the swopes drank from their cistern. And then the typhoid started. On December 11th, Lenora Copridge and other of the cook's daughters came down with the disease. She was followed by all the resident swope children, Chrisman, Margaret, Stella, Sarah, and Lucy, and several visitors to the house, Georgie Compton, Nora Dixon, Stuart Fleming, and Mildred Fox. The epidemic nature of the disease led to several other nurses being called in, among them Elizabeth Gordon, May Pierce, and Anna Houlihan. On December 5th, as Anna Houlihan told it, Dr. Hyde told me he had given Chrisman a capsule. Dr. Hyde left the room. I started to give the patient a bath. He talked with me and seemed in good condition. Suddenly he was seized with a convulsion. His head drew back. His arms doubled up. The legs became rigid. His whole body shook violently. He made a most peculiar moaning sound. Houlihan said that she called Dr. Hyde, who entered the room and began attending to Chrisman. Then, quote, I remarked to him it looked as though Chrisman had meningitis. Dr. Hyde said that was what was the matter. He administered two injections to Chrisman, one of digitalis and one of nitroglycerin. Digitalis, also known as foxglove, is one of those substances that is usually a fatal poison, but from which a useful medicine can be derived. In this case, one used to treat heart failure. Nitroglycerin, likewise, is used medically to treat heart failure. Anna Houlihan further stated that she later gave Chrisman an injection of strychnine on Hyde's orders. Strychnine, once again, is usually known nowadays as a poison, but also had medicinal uses, particularly, again, for heart failure. While I'm obviously no doctor, the administration of three medicines used to treat cardiac complaints to someone who, according to the above quotes, you felt had meningitis, a primarily neurological condition, seems bizarre to me. On the same day that Chrisman Swope died, a telegram was sent to his sister Lucy, who was, who was traveling in Europe at the time. She left at once for home though the message had failed to inform her that her brother was dead, and was due to arrive in New York on December 15th. A friend of Lucy's named Mary Hickman was to go to New York to meet her friend and break the news to her, but Dr. Hyde insisted on going himself. Before he had left Independence, he stopped at the room of Margaret Swope. He gave her a hypodermic injection. Stepping out of the room, he informed the attending nurse, a Miss Churchill, that he had just given Margaret an injection of camphorated oil and that she had a weak intermittent pulse. Nurse Churchill entered the room and found that Margaret had a regular pulse and that the odor of camphor, which normally has a very strong smell, could not be detected. Whatever the injection was, it was quite painful and Margaret's arms swelled and was useless for several months afterward. On December 15th, Dr. Hyde picked up Lucy Swope in New York as planned. While they were on their way back, there was an occasion on which Lucy was going to get a drink of water, and Dr. Hyde left and got it for her. When they finally returned to Independence, she stayed in the house for a short time, and then she went to stay with a friend, Eleanor Minor. While at Eleanor's house, she developed a fever and returned home. Dr. Twyman found that she had developed typhoid. It was around this time that it was noted that during the few days that Dr. Hyde was absent, the typhoid patients in the house were improving. 
He had left some medicine for Margaret Swope, and on December 18th he inquired whether she was still taking the medicine. She replied that she was. Then Dr. Hyde seemed to be examining the pills. Anna Holohan, who was present, could not tell just what he was doing. Shortly after he left, she gave Margaret one of the pills, and after only a few moments, she was seized with convulsions. Dr. Twyman, already present at the house, arrived in the room as Margaret vomited. The several nurses in the house met and agreed that it certainly seemed as if Dr. Hyde were responsible for the conditions in the house. They told Dr. Twyman, who must have been harboring the same suspicions as he had saved some of the vomit from moments before. Then he went to Mrs. Swope and told her the suspicions of himself and the nurses, and though she didn't say it in as many words, it seemed that she shared the suspicions as well. On the same day that her daughter Sarah was diagnosed with typhoid, Mrs. Swope had had a headache. Dr. Hyde gave her some pills, and she thought that the water he had given her had a strange taste to it. It had a yellowish tinge. She had an idea that Dr. Hyde was trying to poison her. Twyman summoned Hyde to his offices later that evening. Around the same time he left the Swope mansion for this appointment, Thomas Swope, the only child of Mrs. Swope other than Dr. Hyde's wife who did not develop typhoid, was coming back to the house when he saw a man he recognized as Dr. Hyde coming out of the house, then pausing, searching through his pockets, throwing something onto the ground, and stamping it into the snow, and walking on. Once Dr. Hyde was gone, Thomas Swope went to where he had thrown something and found a piece of a capsule. He was acquainted with the odor of cyanide, as he had worked in the mining industry in Nevada, and cyanide compounds are used in the testing of ores. The capsule his brother-in-law had dropped clearly smelled of cyanide. He brought the capsule home, and the nurse he spoke to agreed that it smelled of cyanide. At the offices of Dr. Twyman, the elder doctor informed Dr. Hyde of the suspicions expressed by the nurses and shared by himself and Mrs. Swope. Hyde responded by threatening to sue the nurses for libel. After being calmed down and dissuaded from this course of action, Dr. and Mrs. Hyde both left the mansion and went back to their own house in Kansas City. But while Hyde was at Twyman's, Thomas Swope and John Paxton, the attorney, searched the area more thoroughly and found several other pieces of capsule. All these were put into an envelope, and together with a vomit sample Dr. Twyman had saved, they were sent to Dr. Ludwig Hectone of the Rush Medical College in Chicago. Testing then carried out by both a Professor Haynes at that school and a Professor Vaught at the University of Michigan confirmed that the capsules gathered by Swope and Paxton had, indeed, contained cyanide, and furthermore, that the sample of Margaret Swope's vomit contained traces of strychnine. Professor Hectone and Dr. Twyman had the bodies of Colonel Swope and Chrisman exhumed, and autopsies were conducted. First, the results of Chrisman's autopsy, as that was the first one actually conducted. Though the death certificate signed by Dr. Hyde had said he died of meningitis, the autopsy revealed that his brain was completely normal and showed no signs of that disease. It also revealed that Chrisman had the early stages of typhoid at the time of his death, and that there were traces of both strychnine and cyanide in his system. Likewise, the autopsy on Colonel Swope 
revealed that though Dr. Hyde had signed a death certificate indicating that he had died of a cerebral hemorrhage brought on by a stroke, his brain showed no signs of that condition. There were traces of kidney disease. Professor Hectone said that he believed that he, too, had died from strychnine and cyanide poisoning. But while they were waiting on the results of the autopsies, on January 7th, John Paxton received a letter from a Dr. Edward Stewart of Kansas City, who revealed to him that on November 10th, Dr. Hyde had approached him and said he was interested in doing some bacteriological research. He purchased some samples of both typhoid and diphtheria bacteria. Stewart said that when he became aware of the outbreak of typhoid among the swopes, he became suspicious and went over to Dr. Hyde's offices to investigate. As it turned out, Dr. Hyde was absent, at this time being in New York picking up Lucy Swope. He told the receptionist present, Bessie Coughlin, that his bacteria were dead and that he needed to borrow some of Dr. Hyde's. Stewart found that some of the typhoid germs were missing, as were a good deal of the diphtheria germs, although it was determined that those had been mislabeled and were pus bacteria, not diphtheria. He also said that on December 29, 1909, he was called by Mrs. Hyde. Dr. Hyde believed that he had contracted typhoid and wanted Dr. Stewart to test him to see if he was infected. Stewart determined that while Hyde did have some of the symptoms indicating typhoid, he felt that it was likely that he had been infected with dead or weakened bacteria. Finally, on January 10, 1910, the coroner's inquest found Dr. Hyde responsible for the murder of Colonel Swope. He was arrested and released on $50,000 bail. Paxton also questioned the other conditions of the Swope home in a letter published in several newspapers, as a result of which Dr. Hyde sued Paxton, Dr. Frank Hall, Dr. Edward Stewart, and the Pulitzer Publishing Company for libel. But events were already in motion, and a grand jury was convened to investigate matters at the Swope home. By March 5th, he was formally charged with two counts of murder in the cases of Colonel Swope and Chrisman Swope, manslaughter for the bloodletting death of Moss Hunton, and seven counts of attempted murder for each of the typhoid cases. So, on April 16, 1910, the Hyde case went to trial. Presiding over the case was Judge Ralph Latchaw. Lead prosecutor was Virgil Conklin, assisted by Henry Jost and Edward Curtin. Dr. Hyde was defended by Frank Walsh, John Lucas, and John Cleary. The working theory of the prosecution as to Hyde's motives were clear. They maintained that he sought to control the Swope fortunes, that first he had killed Moss Hunton in an attempt to become the executor of Colonel Swope's will, and that then following the murder of Colonel Swope himself, he proceeded to attempt to kill the other children, all of whom gained monetarily in the will. Recall that Dr. Hyde's wife gained $135,000. But by killing off the other children, he possibly stood to gain 1,200,000 more, as each had been bequeathed $200,000. Due probably to the wealth and local importance of Colonel Swope, the trial of Dr. Hyde was a sensational one in Kansas City. Lawyers had to comb through a list of nearly 250 people until they found the 12 necessary to fill the jury. But the defense was dealt a minor setback when, on April 19th, Dr. Twyman, who would have become one of their star witnesses, died. 
Some of you could be thinking about Dr. Hyde possibly having killed the other doctor, but he died of complications from surgery for diverticulitis. The prosecution's case was, for the most part, the story as has been told in this episode so far. Much was made out of the fact that Dr. Hyde had bought strychnine, but this might not be as damning as it seems. After all, strychnine at the time was used for medical purposes, and though it is of course a poison, one could also bring up that a doctor buying something used as medicine wouldn't be strange at all. One interesting bit which came out in trial was that on September 3, 1909, Dr. Hyde had bought cyanide from a Kansas City druggist named Hugo Breckline. Unlike strychnine, cyanide had no medical usage, so this would be more significant. Dr. Hyde told Breckline that he needed to kill some dogs, although when questioned, Hyde himself said that he had said bugs. In any case, what's really interesting is that sometime in the early hours of the morning on December 23, 1909, the Rialto building downtown was severely damaged by fire. $300,000 of damage resulted. The building was mainly used for doctors and dentists' offices. Hugo Breckline's shop was also in the Rialto building. Although it wasn't brought up in trial, as the building burned only five days after suspicions about Dr. Hyde were voiced, one wonders if he had set the fire trying to cover up his purchases. The defense's case began on May 4th. One witness called was a Dr. Frailing. He testified that meningitis might have been present in Chrisman Swope's body and just not have been apparent. Furthermore, in his opinion, the condition of Margaret Swope's arm might have been due to an injection of camphorated oil, as Dr. Hyde claimed, and not the pus bacteria, believed to have been diphtheria by Hyde, as claimed by the prosecution. Another doctor called by the defense, Dr. J.W. Allen, said that, despite the assertions of Hugo Breckline and several physicians called by the prosecution, cyanide did indeed have medical uses. Allen conceded on cross-examination, however, that the concentration Hyde bought was far stronger than used. Although Dr. W.M. Cross at first seemed to help the prosecution when he said he could find no immediate cause for the typhoid outbreak at the Swope mansion, he called into question the findings about the cause of death of Colonel Swope. Both cyanide and strychnine were found in his system, remember. Colonel Swope had been embalmed before death, and so all the autopsy results needed to be questioned. In particular, he said it was possible for the ammonia naturally in the body to react with the embalming fluid and produce hydrocyanic acid, creating the necessary levels of cyanide. As to the strychnine in his system, that was problematic as well, since as testified to by S.W. Spangler, Colonel Swope's business partner, the old man regularly took medicinal tonics containing strychnine. When the autopsy was conducted, only one-seventh of Colonel Swope's liver was examined. In that section, a sixth of a grain of strychnine was found. The doctors conducting the autopsy had extrapolated from this and concluded that his entire liver contained one grain, more than twice the amount necessary to kill a man. This is obviously far from a scientific way to determine cause of death. When Mrs. Hyde was called, her testimony, perhaps unsurprisingly, contradicted almost all previous testimony about what had happened. 
She said that she never told her husband to stop bloodletting in the case of Moss Hunton, as Pearl Keller, the nurse, had testified. Her mother had specifically requested Dr. Hyde go to New York for Lucy when others testified that he had volunteered himself. And she also claimed that her brother Thomas had been in the house and couldn't have seen her husband throwing the capsules in the snow. Then Dr. Hyde himself took the stand. He said that he had merely used the missing bacteria in tests, and that he regularly used cyanide to clean silver nitrate stains from his fingers, which doesn't really sound very safe to me, but who am I? On cross-examination, it was revealed, though, that for something he claimed to habitually use for ten years, he couldn't recall one place he had bought cyanide other than Hugo Brecklines, where, according to Breckline, it was capsules he had bought, not liquid. He also contradicted himself, since he had also testified that he bought the cyanide to kill cockroaches. The case was rested on May 13, 1910. The jury deliberated for three days before coming back with a verdict of guilty on all counts. Dr. Hyde was sentenced to life in prison. An appeal was promptly filed, and the Missouri Supreme Court ruled that enough doubts were raised in the first trial to warrant a retrial. Hyde ended up waiting in prison for a year and a half before the new trial began on October 24, 1911. Presiding this time was Judge E.E. E. Porterfield. The prosecution was again led by Virgil Conklin, with, with assistance from James Page and James Reed. The defense was the same as it had been in the first trial. The trial had, had gone on just over a month when one of the jurors, Harry Waldron developed a stomach ailment and the trial had to be put on hold until he recovered. Waldron was in dire financial straits and was drowning in debt. His wife could barely keep his five children fed since he was by necessity out of work for the time being. It was thought that the stomach complaint was due to worry and anxiety. On December 1st, he resumed his duties. Then early on the morning of December 11th, Waldron arranged the sheet so that it would look like someone was sleeping in his bed and left the Centropolis Hotel, where the jury had been sequestered, through the transom window above the door. Judge Porterfield said that if Waldron was not located by the next day, he would discharge the jury. Investigation of what had happened indicated that Harry Waldron had skipped out on a jury once before in Roswell, New Mexico. He was located the next day, back at his house, he said that he had left the hotel and was running out on his wife and family as well. He took a train to Emporia, Kansas, and then apparently had a change of heart and came back to Kansas City. He rejoined the jury, and Judge Porterfield declared the case a mistrial and rescheduled a third trial for January 2, 1912. By this time, James Reed, one of the prosecutors, had been elected senator. The trial was delayed until May 27th so that Reed could rejoin the case, as he was in Washington. But this didn't happen. This day came, and the prosecution delayed again until the next year. The third trial finally began on January 15, 1913. After about two months, the jury became deadlocked, and the case was again declared a mistrial. The state was going to try the case for a fourth time, but dropped it before a jury had been selected. Finally, on April 9, 1917, the state completely abandoned the case. Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde would never answer for whatever he may have done. 
Dr. and Mrs. Hyde had two children, Logan and Francis. But the trial destroyed what little relationship Frances Hyde had with her family. In October of 1920, she divorced her husband, who she said had become irritable and borderline abusive. She took custody of the two children, and a bankrupt Dr. Hyde moved out. Eventually, she and her family reconciled somewhat. She lived in Kansas City the rest of her life, dying on December 10, 1964, at the age of 84. Dr. Hyde was fired from every other job he tried to hold, eventually opening up another medical practice in Lexington, Missouri, his hometown. And it was here, practicing as a country doctor, that Bennett Clark Hyde died on August 7, 1934, at the age of 62. So whatever did happen, did Dr. Hyde actually murder Colonel Swope and the others? This case is one that I've gone back and forth on several times since beginning the research. I've eventually concluded that if I were on the jury for this case, I'd have likely voted to acquit. While the prosecution did present good evidence of his having done it, at the same time, the defense gave equally compelling arguments that he didn't do it. Overall, I'm just wasn't convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did it. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.